Friends and comrades, uh, I'm here again, mere steps from Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines in the Delaware Way Central Command. Uh, it's also important to note that I am in close proximity to the Biden bunker. It's a sh short few miles between us. Uh, we're both basically doing the same thing, which I find extremely weird. Uh, Super producer Carl is on with us, promoting, uh, pr producing again remotely. And our guest today is Matt Brunig. Uh, Matt is the president of the People's Policy Project, an independent, small donor-supported think tank focusing on economic issues of inequality, poverty, and welfare systems. Matt was also previously an attorney at the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how, how are you guys doing down in D.C.? How's, uh, how's life under um, sort of isolation quarantine business? You know, my life hasn't changed that much because I already work from home. I mean, I guess the difference is my uh, my four-year-old is uh, not in childcare uh, anymore, which it makes things a little more complicated. But other than that, I'm doing all right. Very good. Well, uh, the new paper dropped uh, just this week. Um, it is entitled uh, The Myth of the Earned Income Tax Credit. Uh, this is like right up my alley. Uh, because it uh, really takes on assumptions that we're supposed to sort of swallow as the facts of physics or something. Uh, but it takes apart uh, basically th the three arguments for the earned income tax credit uh, with some uh, some research that you've done. Um, and I, I think the way to start would be just to explain uh, the history and what the earned income tax credit is and sort of how it operates today and what the rationale is behind it before we take it apart. Yeah, so the earned income tax credit began, I want to say, in the 70s. Um, I don't remember the precise date. Initially, it was quite a small program. It, it wasn't very significant, I guess. It, you know, people didn't talk a whole lot about it. Um, and the way the program works and worked then and works now is that you get a certain amount of sort of matching dollars, essentially, for every dollar you earn. So, for example, right now, if you're, uh, this is the most typical situation, you're a single mother and you have two kids, every dollar you earn, you get 40 cents. The government kicks in 40 cents in the form of this earned income tax credit. Of course, you don't get that money until the next year when you file your taxes, but that's sort of how it works. And, you know, initially it was a very modest credit. People didn't really talk a whole lot about it. In the 1990s, when we had welfare reform and we were getting rid of, uh, you know, cash welfare, aid to families with dependent children, making it harder to get on supplemental security income, when we were sort of shrinking those out-of-work benefits for disabled people and uh, single mothers who aren't working, when we were shrinking those benefits, they also dialed up the earned income tax credit to a much higher level, really expanded benefits. And that was part of a kind of general regime of we're, we're not going to support sort of the poorest of the poor anymore, the, the shiftless poor, the lazy poor who don't go out and work, but we are going to support the working poor. And so you get cuts to AFDC, cuts to SSI, cuts to other programs, but you get increases to the earned income tax credit because that, 
that goes to people who work and who deserve it. Um, and so that was sort of the historical uh, thrust of it. And this paper was trying to uh, evaluate, you know, how has the earned income tax credit actually performed over the years? Has it has it held up to these promises? Is is it a model that we should be looking uh, to copy or expand upon in the future? Yes. Yeah, so you've identified basically would amount to three mismeasurements um, when making the argument that um, certain things are going to be ameliorated or you're going to see improvement in certain areas based on the earned income tax credit. The first one is work. Um, that this would, because it is means tested, because it's not available, because while we're cutting um, direct cash payments to the poorest of the poor, um, we're supposed to be driving or, in or incenting people um, into the workforce even at low wages. Um, so what the, what kind of miscalculations have you identified and what are the what are sort of the issues with this particular uh, with this uh, with this issue? Yeah, so yeah, I mean like you said, that is the idea of the program among other things is since we're matching every dollar you earn with 40 cents or whatever it might be in your situation, uh, then you'll want to work more, right? Um, you know, higher pay, you know, that means you want to work more. And so it'll get more people out into the labor force that way. Um, and, you know, the, there have been a lot of papers written on this, probably hundreds, um, because how do you actually evaluate whether it worked or not is kind of a complicated question. You know, we didn't we didn't have a randomized control study where we gave the EITC to half the population and didn't give it to the other half. We, we just did it all at once. And so teasing out those differences and whether it had an effect or not is not straightforward. And so the papers, you know, they have all these regression models and I have a regression model and you have a regression model. Well, my model says this, your model says that, and people go back and forth. But my paper highlighted a study that was put out last year, which I thought was quite convincing um, by an economist named Heinrich Clevin, in which he looked at 27 state-level EITC expansions. So it's not just the federal government that has the EITC. State governments have also added their own version of the EITC on top of the federal one. And so he says, let's just go look at all of those. Those are a little bit more interesting to look at because it is the case that California increases its EITC, but that doesn't mean Oregon did or Nevada. So you can kind of get some controls to see what happens when one state increases it, but other states don't. And he finds across all 27 state-level EITCs that he looked at, no effect on employment. Employment did not increase. And then he looked at the five federal expansions, because we've expanded the EITC five times over the years. And he found that in four of the five, you can't see anything. Nothing happens to the population that we expect to work more, that we're trying to incentivize to go out and work more. Nothing happens. In one of the five, which was the 1993 expansion, you do see something. Right, right after it's expanded, the uh, single mothers go to work at a much higher rate than you know would be normal. But what he does, and what a what what a lot of papers have not done that came before him, is he says, "Well, wait a minute. It wasn't just the case that all we did was increase the EITC in 1993. We also allowed states to cut AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, which was you know cash assistance to essentially the poorest of the poor." single mothers, um, they started cutting that in 93 in certain states, not all of them, but some of them. 
And we also had a big economic expansion at that time. And so if we control for those factors, we see that there's no change in employment even in 1993, which was the big year. Was, you know, that was the big expansion, and that's the one a lot of the studies have keyed in on. And so he doesn't find any, any employment expansion in any of them. Um, and what's interesting, I didn't mention this in the paper, but he's done some similar work for other countries because other countries have a, a same kind of benefit. Like in the UK, they have something called the worker tax credit. It's basically just like the ITC. He does the same thing there, doesn't find employment increases. So this is sort of a phantom thing, actually finding <laughs> how is this actually making people work more? It doesn't look like it is, or if it is, it's not you know, maybe one time it did, and, and other times it's it's not at all, so. Yeah, the second one be, uh, that is uh, evaluated is administrative costs. Um, the argument being uh, that if the benefit is paid as part of the tax plan, then there's really no additional um, cost uh, whatsoever in administering it as there would be with administering maybe other direct plans. Um, can you talk about how you uh, went after this particular um, item and what you found? Right, yeah. So people who love the EITC, they always cite this statistic that the IRS itself puts out. And they say, look, we run the EITC program because the way you get it is through your tax forms. At the end of the year, you file your tax form, you get your EITC, and it costs us less than 1% of you know, the total benefits paid out. And so that's the amount it always gets cited, less than 1%, less than 1%, which makes it look really, really efficient, right? Because it's not like food stamps where you have all these welfare offices across the country that are set up. You can go in and sign up for food stamps. It's not like unemployment insurance where we have you know, 51 bureaucracies and all the states running unemployment insurance and they got to process all these claims and so on. No, it's the same tax form. You're going to file anyways, no additional costs. I heard one uh, researcher at a, at a different think tank once call it a, a shovel ready way to get money out to people. Um, but the problem with this is there's a sort of, uh, uh, they're kind of hiding the ball a little bit because while it's true that the IRS does not, uh, have welfare offices set up around the country where you go and you sign up for your EITC. It is in the place of the IRS. We have welfare offices set up by private companies. We have Liberty Tax Service. We have H and R Block. We have Jackson Hewitt, and those companies open up offices all across the country around tax time. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them, and they concentrate those offices in zip codes that have a lot of people who are eligible for the EITC because that's the best way to get money and to get a, sh a fee from, from the uh, person filing taxes. And so what I did here is, as, what I, as I said, well, look, these are welfare offices. I mean, even though they're private and so we don't count them that way, they are welfare offices and they do cost money. You have to pay a fee to get your taxes done by H&R Block or Liberty Tax Service. And so we should count that fee as an administrative cost, just like we count the you know money we spend on the SNAP welfare office as an administrative cost, right? To really get an apples to apples comparison, you gotta you gotta count that. And so what I did was I just kind of looked at some studies to see because it's not easy to figure out exactly how much money these tax preparers take in. 
you know they they don't like report it on the tax form and you can like add it up or something you have to kind of guesstimate it a little bit and so what i did is i i I went to the irs and i you know tried to figure out okay how many people who file for the eitc use one of these paid tax preparers and they have reports that say 60 percent so 60 percent of people use these paid tax preparers so then i go looking for another statistic to say okay how much do these guys typically charge um, and I found some uh, private survey data uh, released by the uh, Progressive Policy Institute that says that they charge anywhere from 13 to 22% of the EITC refund. So I multiply the you know percentage of people who use the refund by the uh, percentage fee that those preparers tend to take. And I you know back out that administrative fees are about 11% of total program cost, which makes it less efficient than certainly social security but even snap and medicaid and section 8 and these other programs that we think of as having a, a somewhat you know big bureaucracy uh, behind them this this is more inefficient than all of those it's just that we're not counting all the administrative costs because we're counting any money that liberty tax service takes we're acting as that's sort of off the books and, and we don't we just sort of ignore it yeah i, I i'm always um I'm always quick to note that a lot of the times when you see this hide the ball sort of issue within these structural things that are, you know, they're opaque, um, it's somehow the ball is all, the hidden ball trick always passes it off to like private enterprise. And then you're like, oh, now we don't know what happened. So it doesn't, then it doesn't count, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, they I, do that. I was interested to see that. They do that with Medicare too. Uh, if, I mean, I don't know if you've covered Medicare for all in here, but, you know, they act like, uh, Oh, you know, if we switch to Medicare for all, it would cost all this money. Um, and then they ignore the fact that, you know, the private system costs even more than that because, well, it's private, so it doesn't matter. But obviously, at the bottom line, it does matter. It doesn't matter if Liberty Tax Service is taking it or if the, you know, whoever else is. So the third, yeah, the, the third, um, the third issue that is uh, interrogated is headcount poverty. Uh, in other words, um, the earned income tax credit because it because it tiered up, uh, and so the lowest, uh, uh, the, the poorest of the poor, and very you know the the folks who would get the most cash, the the folks that would get the most cash uh, sort of benefit would be more incented to work and dr- and driven into um, you know the, the workforce at at low wages. Um, what is the methodology to, to sort of figure that and how does it work? Yeah, so, you know, when you think about this program, it's kind of cleverly designed to do one thing in particular, at least with the statistics, and that is to get as many people over the poverty line with as little amount of dollars as possible, right? Because instead of giving money to the poorest of the poor, which doesn't usually get them over the poverty line, right? If someone is, you know, has zero earnings and you give them, you know, even a significant sum of money, it's not going to get them over the poverty line. It'll make their life a lot better, but you know, it, it's a long road from zero dollars to the poverty line. It's not that long a road from, you know, twelve hundred, twelve thousand dollars to the poverty line or fifteen thousand to the poverty line, right? That's a shorter trip. And what the EITC does by providing benefits on a kind of matching funds basis where every dollar you earn they kick in an extra amount it has the effect of concentrating benefits 
right on those who are just below the poverty line and help scoop them over the line, right? And so that's sort of the, that is, in itself is a little bit of a, of a game that they're playing, right? Because they're taking advantage of the fact that that's how we count poverty. We count it as a kind of binary thing. Either you're over the line or under it. Um, and so they, they already kind of play that game. But what I do in the paper is instead of sort of, you know, fighting that game, and I, is I say, well, let's actually look at how good you are at doing that. You say this is the best program really possible for moving people from below the line over it, like right below it, over it. Do you actually do this? And when I went to go kind of look into this, um, you know, the data that they use to prove this is not actually measured at all. They don't go out and see how much money did each person on the EIT, how many, how much money did each person get from the EITC and then add it all up. Instead, they take the survey data that uh, reports how much each person earned and then they apply a tax simulation that assumes everyone who's eligible for the EITC gets the EITC, they get their full benefit, and they get the money in the same year uh, that you know they earned their income. And all three of those assumptions are wrong. Um, the way the EITC works is you don't get your money until next year. You don't get your money till the refund comes next year. And so you shouldn't count that money in, in the prior year, you should count it in the year you actually receive it. And so that's what I call the wrong year problem. The second problem is not everyone who's eligible for the EITC actually gets it. The IRS just said that only 78% do. The other 22% miss out. They don't file taxes. They don't claim it, right? It's a complicated program. Not everyone is aware of it or understand how, how it works. And then the last problem is, as we mentioned already, 60% of the people who do actually get the EITC are paying some 13 to 22% of that benefit straight to the tax preparer. That's not really their money that, that they actually receive, but the you know data used to measure the effect of the program assumes they, the recipient gets that money. Um, and so what I do in the paper is pretty simple. Is I just say, okay, let's fix all of these problems as best as we can with the data that is available to us. So let's move the money into the correct year. So instead of counting EITC that you received in, in 2019 as 2018 income, count it as 2019 income, right? Instead of assuming everyone who is eligible for the EITC gets it, assume that only 78% get it, since that's the actual figure from the IRS. Instead of assuming that people receive their whole benefit, acknowledge that about 60%. Uh, pay these uh, tax preparation fees in order to get it. And you put that all together and you add it all up. And what happens is this, um, you know, anti-poverty effect of EITC, which is touted to be quite high, is actually cut in half. So the reports that you get from even the census and from pretty much all the other think tanks, they are all overstating how much EITC reduces poverty by double. The real number is half what they're reporting. Um, and so that's the final conclusion of the piece. And that, I think, is sort of the most novel and interesting part of the paper and the one that I'm, I'm hoping to get out there the most because a lot of people who make important decisions in D.C. do so on the basis of these numbers, which are not accurate and, like, not accurate in a big way. So, 
Yeah, I was. That was the most interesting um, part to me, and it also struck me that a lot of these programs. We I had um, a, a week or two ago. We had an economist come on, uh, and also a, a res- small restaurant owner here, and talk about the CARES Act and PPP. And I think about how these things are structured, and I, I, I you know, it's it's one of those things where you have practical problems that um, once they aren't addressed. Um, are never brought up like it's, it's it's sort of like you know it's, it's sort of an easy practical problem when you when you break it down and and hopefully that's because it seems like an easy practical problem those are the things that could get addressed and I could see somebody saying well let's at least um, you know change these calculations so we can start at least having some impact but what other um, you know what other prescriptions would policy prescriptions do you think would um, improve the earned income tax credit or should we just be going back to some other some other method my uh, per- personal approach on it is is to kind of say that these tax credit programs which is not just the earned income tax credit but also the child tax credit and the child independent care tax credit and the dependent credit and the <laughs> i mean we could go on and on there's like dozens of these um, the, the EITC and the child tax credit are the, the two big ones, but that these are kind of failed ideas, that they don't really work that well. People don't understand that they're getting these benefits. They often don't apply for them because it's just complicated. And so what are you going to do? Um, and then you got to rely on all these private tax people. Like To me, that whole thing is just a mess. And what we should do is we should look to programs like Social Security to inspire us as to how to design the welfare state. Because you think about Social Security, and it is, for the most part, pretty simple. If you are above a certain age, you'll get an old age pension. And they just send you a check each month. And the the um, administrative costs on that are almost nothing. I think in the paper, they're like 0.4%. Um, very easy program. The same thing on Social Security if you're disabled, right? You go, you get checked out. Doctor says, yep, this person's too disabled to work. And they send you your benefits, right? That is a much better model. And so when I think about, okay, well, how do we use that model to achieve what the EITC is trying to achieve or what the child tax credit is trying to achieve? And when you look at those two credits, they really are about getting cash benefits to people with children, which makes sense, of course, because prior to welfare reform, that's what we were doing with aid, aid to families with dependent children, right? You'd basically, it's money for single mothers. Um, and EITC is this, the same kind of idea. And so my approach on this is to say, okay, well, why don't we just create a child benefit in the social security system? So just like elderly people get their old age benefit from Social Security, just as disabled people get their disability benefit from Social Security, so should children, through their parents, of course, get a child benefit (coughs) from the Social Security Administration. And so what would that look like? One very easy option would just be to say $300 a month for every child and just get rid of the EITC, get rid of the CTC. That would do two things. One... I guess it would do th- three things. It would benefit everyone. So one, all these really poor people who are being excluded because their parents don't have very much earnings, now they're going to be included because everyone gets the 300 if you have a child, right? 
300 a month, which is 3,600 a year. Everyone gets that. So you, now you bring them back in. So we, we really starved them quite badly in the 90s. And I mean, it, it went really badly. Like extreme child poverty tripled after welfare reform passed. Like they really squeezed those people quite hard. So now they're going to come back in. You're going to get the child benefit. The other thing it does is it makes sure that middle and sort of upper middle class people, they also get the child benefit. I mean, everyone would get it. But, you know, the kind of people that you want to bring into the coalition to keep the program strong, they're also going to get it. Right now, they don't get the EITC because the EITC phases out and is means tested on the, on the you know, it means tested against higher incomes. So you get them in. But then the last thing is even people who currently receive the EITC, they would benefit from it. One, this would be more generous. But two, they don't have to jump through all these hoops. And instead of having, you know, one fifth of people who are eligible not receive it, I'm quite confident that almost 100% of people would figure out how to sign up for this benefit. In fact, you could be enrolled in the hospital when you had had a child and, and you were signing up uh, for their social security card. So that's sort of my approach. Yeah, you've written pretty extensively uh, about sort of child welfare and family, uh, you know, packages that you would receive sort of, as you said, like uh, when you're born and, and they do this uh, in a lot of social democracies, you know, there's a certain support that you get right out of the blocks, which I find not only do I find interesting, um, we have um, a candidate who is challenging for a state house seat who has written um, sort of pretty extensively on family, working family issues. And uh, actually, Carl, my producer, is uh, her uh, campaign manager, uh, Medina Wilson-Anton. And uh, I think they based a lot of that sort of uh, a lot of that platform that she's written uh, on a lot of your on a, on a lot of your work about sort of uh, family support and welfare packages um, in the social democracies in Scandinavia and what it would look like here. Uh, sort of a lot, some of the things that you were mentioning. So I, I, I'm, I'm definitely interested in that. I don't know if Carl, if you want to uh, chime in on that. Yeah, just um, we were knocking doors. Back when we were allowed to knock doors, so I guess six plus months ago, and we were getting a lot of people who were uh, saying that, you know, they had problems with childcare, they had problems with being able to pay for various things, uh, healthcare was too expensive, uh, and this was an area that had a lot of young families of people in their 20s, early 30s, uh, and most of them had kids. Uh, and I think it was a few months after, or a little while after the, um, Family Fun Pack had been released, and so sort of using that as a guide, we we worked on using that as a guide, and then going off what we could do on the state level, and then based on the things that we'd heard, you know, from people at the doors, we sort of developed a like a plan for working families. Uh, and so I know the Family Fun Pack has a whole bunch of stuff, baby box. Uh, what else do we got here? Parental leave. Uh, child care, pre-K, school lunch, and uh, health care, and the child allowance. And so we sort of right. adapted a lot of those things for um, state level, because some of them are easier to do, uh, some of them are more difficult to do. So paid leave, medical leave, family leave, that's all uh, pretty straightforward to expand. Child care, we, you know, we talked to a lot of local child care providers, see like, how would it be easier for them to provide more child care? Uh, do we need more money reforming the system? Because Delaware has a particularly insane system of means testing and 
garbage like that. Um, and then, yeah, so like various things like illuminating school debt, baby boxes. We talked to people. They were really, you know, into the concept. Uh, and then there's various things you can do with Medicaid because a lot of children in Delaware are on the, you know, the CHIP program. And right. it has like very limited amounts of cost sharing, but the it's so limited that it doesn't really generate any revenue. And like we talked to reps and people in the HHS about this and like it doesn't really generate any revenue, but it's just enough to keep poor families from actually using it. And so like you can get rid of stuff like that. And so there's various things we figured out you could do at a state level. Um, Right, right, that would yeah. help people and you know they don't have to jump through hoops anymore um but you know it's fairly cost prohibitive or it's fairly cost uh what's the word it makes sense it doesn't cost that much but it yeah, would yeah. help people drive right. so much yeah and i mean with some of the cost stuff you know i don't you don't want to get too uh hung up in some of the uh dynamic scoring and that sort of stuff but there was a study from, uh, I don't know, I think it was Quebec. It was one of the Canadian provinces that introduced free child care. And, you know, they found that the program, like, in a very literal sense, paid for itself because once you provide free child care, then you get a lot more people working uh, who otherwise can't work because they can't afford child care. And then when they're working, they pay taxes and then it it offsets like they had a total offset in Quebec. It didn't actually change their net fiscal position at all. Um, so, you know, and there are other things that happen with that. I mean, child poverty, we have the highest child poverty rate in the developed world over, over 20% of the kids grow up poor. And that has, that has long-term effects, um, like <coughs> that are not good for anyone, but also not good for, state budgets uh people who grow up poor are much much more likely to um be unemployed to uh have interactions with the criminal justice system i guess would be a, one uh, a delicate way of putting it so you know it's not good for development um and to, of society more generally and uh, you know the economy is made up of people if you treat people badly you malnourish them you create all sorts of stress and anxiety in their lives they're not going to be very productive and that's not good for for the state budget or, or anyone else yeah we've had sort of a yeah so before we in Delaware oh, sorry, sorry Carl, go ahead with um just uh politicians are they love clinging to the um the means testing because in their minds it does uh it reduce costs and it means that only people uh, who deserve things can get them. And then we look at like the actual practical reality of it. And you have so many people who just fall between the cracks. Uh, <coughs> none of them ever figure it out because they don't get those calls. Like those people don't know the call their state rep or their state senator or whatever it is. Uh, and so they just, just don't think the problem exists. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, part, part of the, you know, idea of the paper here, you know, is to kind of emphasize one of the reasons they don't realize that the, programs don't work the way they seem like they would work on paper is because people are not actually measuring the programs. They're actually assuming the programs work as they're written when they're producing the data. Like the data in the EITC case is produced with a tax simulation. 
that just takes the rules that are in the tax code and applies them and assumes that that's how they actually work. Um, and the same thing happens with all this means testing stuff. Is you go, oh, this is great. We're not wasting Medicaid money on people who have incomes above 138% of the poverty line. Isn't that great? Uh, you know, we're saving all this money and targeting it on the poor. And then you go and actually look at the reality of Medicaid participants where you follow them in studies over, you know, a year or two years. And what you find is that uh, over a given year, someone who was in Medicaid, uh, uh, over a third of them cycle out of the program and a large portion of those end up uninsured. Uh, it's like, you know, at a point in time, you're like, this works great. Everyone who has exactly this income will be in Medicaid, except people's income that comes and goes. You might, you know, especially if you're working gig work, it's a mess. I know someone on Medicaid who they literally are on for one month, off for one month, on for one month, off for one month because of the their weird job that they have, which is like uh, some sort of social care job. Um, and it's like, yeah, none of that gets picked up by representatives because on paper that they just look at as if the design works exactly as it's written up um, instead of seeing if it does work that way. Yeah. So before we uh, before we close it out, um, I'd like to hear your uh, views on the uh, economic relief uh, for coronavirus that we've been getting in phases. Um, I'm. Uh, extremely disappointed in even sort of the ground rules of the things that we're talking about here now. And, and I guess this is the fourth phase if we, if we get anything. Um, so what kind of things uh, have you looked at that you think are good? What kind of things probably aren't so good and, and what sort of things would you like to see um, p potentially happen in the next phase of, of economic relief? Yeah, so I, I kind of group the uh, response we've had so far into four categories. Uh, you know, the relevant response that matters to most people. The first was that they're going to make it to where you could get paid leave. If you get sick or your family member gets sick or you have to stay home because your kid's not at school, uh, you'll be able to get paid leave now. That uh, particular, uh, they passed that into law, but it, it was, uh, I would say, a total failure because the way... It was written um, if you were if your employer has less than 50 employees you're not eligible and weirdly if your employer has uh, 500 or more employees you're also not eligible so the only people who can get this sick leave paid leave if they get coronavirus or they need to care for their spouse or whatever is if they work for an employer who has 50 to 499 employees um, which only describes 25% of the workforce. So only 25% of people were actually covered by this paid leave mandate. Probably a large, probably the vast majority of them do not even realize they are covered. And even those who are covered, if they go to the boss and say, hey, I need a paid leave, the, uh, the CARES Act says I can have it, the boss probably says, you know, no, <laughs> you don't just can't believe you're wrong. Just, yeah, I mean, what's, <laughs> at, at this point, what's there, there's really probably no recourse um, yeah, for, for I mean, a lot of this stuff. The, the law says that you can you can initiate a wage and hour lawsuit against them. You know who's going to do that? And this is a temporary provision, right? So you know, I would say total failure on that front. Um, the next part was the. Um, 
those universal payments that you got, the economic impact payments from the IRS, which was twelve hundred per adult, five hundred for kids. Um, that seems to have worked okay. I mean, such as it is, they haven't gotten all the money out because some people are hard to reach. They don't have uh, direct deposit information on file. Their addresses are messed up. You know, that's a nature of our bureaucracy just being bad in general, um, like badly set up. But for what we had to work with, they seem to get that money out pretty quickly. I would say that one worked okay. I don't think it should have been a one-time payment. It should have been every month until the end uh, of of you know the crisis, however defined. Um, but you know, for a one-time payment, it seems like that one went okay. The um, <coughs> other one was the unemployment insurance increase. This one was, uh, I think, by and large, the winner. Uh, like the best thing that they did in the package is they said that if you're on unemployment benefits, in addition to what you usually get. Uh, which is about 30 to 50% of your prior income up to a certain limit. We're going to add 600 a week on top of that. Um, so for most workers, that means they're getting more on unemployment insurance than they got when they uh, had a job. <laughs> if you're making less than $50,000 a year, you should be getting more on unemployment benefits than you had when you were in work. So, you know, we've had obviously what some. Uh, 20 million some odd people sign up for unemployment benefits so it's it's good to know that you know for those folks they were mostly taken care of of course we're also hearing stories of people spending weeks and weeks uh trying to get through having their benefits denied when they shouldn't be so there's a mess on that front but yeah i mean that's that was the one thing i did want to mention is the the best sort of part of the program is logistically maybe even more difficult than getting the checks to folks who are dif more difficult to reach whether they're unbanked or is you know and especially in a state like ours we had the secretary of labor uh, on uh, a couple weeks in to uh, the quarantine and you know he said we're in a small state like this you know we're used to getting hundreds of new uh, unemployment claims a week you know five six hundred maybe never a thousand now they're getting a ten thousand a week right you know so they have no they have no you know they're they're actually trying pretty hard I think they're trying harder than places like Florida which seem like a total uh, mess but yeah that's the only the only difficult part of that that particular benefit is just the logistical problems of you know, not the bureaucrats themselves, but it's set up in right. such a way that it's it's supposed to be lumbering and 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 austere and and whatever else you want to say. So the delivery mechanism, we can't just flip a switch and send money from the Fed yeah. to a you know to to J P Morgan Chase. You know that's easy. We yeah. just get this does that happens with the keystroke. Um, this yeah. is uh, you know more difficult to administer. Yeah, I mean that's what we're seeing across the board is we have allowed our. Uh, social welfare systems to just atrophy and just be poorly designed. I mean, some of these, you know, unemployment systems are running on COBOL code written in the 1970s and stuff like that. <clears throat> and yeah, if that's what you're, you know, you like you said, you can't you can't build a welfare state in a day. So you, you have to work with what you have, and what we have is rickety and not good. So. But people are doing, it seems to me, in the unemployment benefit, they're doing as best as they can, which is still bad, but not, you know, something that could have been fixed by the CARES Act, you know. Um, 
And so the last one was these, um, well, you also, I'm sorry, you also had uh, the uh, PPP, Paycheck Protection Program, um, for small businesses. Uh, you could get uh, a forgivable loan equal to two and a half times, two and a half months of payroll, provided you spent uh, 75% of it on payroll. The other 25% could be spent on rent or utilities, et cetera, et cetera. That program, uh, I think that one's a little tough to assess. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it got money out. So that's, you know, I, I, I would have to see more information because part of the problem with that program is the only way to get your loans forgiven is if you keep your workers on payroll. But if you are most businesses, by the time PPP arrived, you probably had already laid off your workers um, because, you know, it took so long. And also, it, for a lot of these workers in these businesses, it would be better if you laid them off and put them on unemployment benefits, assuming that they actually get on them, because they get make more on unemployment than they were making in the job. And so, there was a weird interaction there that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and there's, there's also a third uh, issue um, that is, you know, not unique to every business, but, uh, you know, the, my friend who owns a small restaurant and a small bakery who had, you know, 36 employees, um, you know, when, because of the, the political nature of opening back up, quote unquote, and how people are going to open back up, you know, they have a, they have a restaurant that's maybe 700 square feet. Uh, if they're able to open back up and have two tables in it, first of all, are two tables going to cover them? Probably not. Um, also are people going to, are you going to see the same number of people come out right away? You know, if you only, if you see just dribs and drabs of people, how are you supposed to keep all of your employees on for three months or six months, depending on how some of these reopenings happen? So it's like, you know, it's, it's tough at the beginning because it took a little while to get out. It's tough in the middle because if you do lay people off, they are getting a pretty decent benefit from, uh, from unemployment. And then, you know, you need to keep people on to make sure these are forgiven or you've taken on a whole uh, load of new debt um, without knowing what the business is going to look like when you're allowed to reopen. Right. So, yeah, it's it's been a pretty tough one. But I, I think, as you said, the jury's still out. Um, some of the big places that, that got their money quick uh, were shamed into giving a lot of it back. Um, so that was that was nice. But, yeah, I guess time will tell um, how effective that's going to be. Yeah. And so then the last one is just the... The big pot, right? The money they set aside for large companies, which mostly seems to have been, uh, I don't know, I, I would say is somewhat of an, a gimmick in the in the sense that they basically loaded up the treasury with, with a bunch of money in order to allow the Fed to buy a bunch of corporate bonds um, because the Fed generally is reluctant to do that unless they can be guaranteed that they're not going to lose money. And so that's what this sort of treasury fund was for and so the fed's been out there just buying tons and tons of corporate bonds uh has really added a lot of liquidity for that uh uh you know market so big companies you know if they need cash they're able to get it right now pretty pretty easily pretty cheaply and the fed is is there making sure that that's the case um and you know i don't know what to make of that i mean my my push when they were talking about how to provide relief to large businesses was to say if you're going to give any large business money you should get it in exchange for equity um i.e stock 
That way the government uh, will own a portion of the company. And uh, if the, once the economy recovers and the stock market recovers, then the government can sort of profit off of the fact that they you know, made that investment. Um, and we've already seen the stock market come back. So I feel like if people had listened to me, <laughs> you know, the government could be owning, you know, 20% of the stock market right now and reaped all of these gains from the last couple of months of the stock market coming back. Instead, we own a bunch of, you know, 1% yielding corporate bonds, um, which is better than just giving them cash for nothing in exchange. But it's not as good as, as they could have done, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think you have to sell... Uh either Carl or I on the uh, the benefits of nationalizing some of these companies. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm with you. Especially some of the Or at least as you said, at least as you said when you when you are in a position. Well, I guess the sticking point is, you know, I went down to DC and and uh back, you know, several years ago and and protested the uh the tax cuts um that were used for buybacks and the reason that these companies don't have cash on hand and are so, you know, and any sort of spook uh, during for the market just you know plummets everything is because they're not in a position to they're not in a position to weather any storm just like a small business might only be able to go a week two weeks a month they're in the same position um, so it's it's a little bit it's a little bit infuriating when you when I you know think about it in that in those terms um, but yeah I mean if, if you're getting an equity stake commensurate with the investment that you've made at least you can feel like um, you know, you're getting something. You're getting something back for it, other than just shoveling money out the door for you know, okay, the bond, but really just shoveling money out the door just to do it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And and you know, and and if, in terms of a like moral hazard, you know, I mean, there's a very straightforward case to make on this. That's not doesn't even have to be like specifically socialistic. And other countries they have done this. So Germany, um, in the 2008 recession, they set aside a fund essentially a bailout fund, but that bailout fund bought equity and they still own a good deal of that equity. And I was reading that for coronavirus, they're doing the same thing. They're just going to give more money to that fund and they're going to keep buying equity. Um, you know, it's and, and so instead of, because uh, what the, the thing with the bonds, what it does is it bails out existing shareholders, which are some of the richest people in the country. Most stock is owned by the very, very rich. Um, you know, some people own a little bit here and there in a 401k, but the real big big money is at the top and you know when you just provide them really cheap credit in the form of bond purchases that just helps the stock price go up now all those rich people are recovered they're recapitalized whereas if you force the company to uh, issue equity they don't get recapitalized instead they they get cut because now their equity is worth less because it's been diluted out by all these new share issuances so you know, and that could make the company behave better in the future. You know, if they knew, hey, if you're going to get blown up by these shocks, we're going to really hose your shareholders down. Maybe they would be more resilient and uh, maybe keep more cash on the balance sheet or something like that um, instead of shoveling it out the door um, and leaving themselves so exposed. So last thing, uh, the, new, the, the new package um, that was approved in the House... Uh, won't get approved in the Senate, so it was sort of a, uh, a messaging s sort of uh, first salvo. And for a first salvo, it looked uh, very uh, impotent yeah. to me uh, from an economic standpoint. Uh, it looked pretty. We'll, call, we'll say it was flaccid. Um, it did. It did kick in, you know, a lot of money 
to the states, which will help with you know unemployment and healthcare and things. Um, but other than that, it looked like a bunch of nothing. Um, did you see any good in it? And are there any changes? Or did you see something we should very much look out for? Um, what is your take on the the newest of the uh, of the of the packages that is uh, sort of stuck in limbo now between the House and the Senate? Yeah, I mean, you pretty much said it. I kind of just sort of disregarded it, I guess, for the most part, because it it, it is very strange, because you're right, no one expects this to pass in the Senate, so this is your chance to really make a bold stand and say, here's a clear-cut thing we, the Democrats, want to do that McConnell won't let us do. And instead, you get this mushy bill with all these provisions, and some of them are not good. Like, why would you put anything that's not good in a bill that's like a messaging bill that you're only going to rely on Democrats to pass that you know is not, you know what I mean? Like, why do that at all? Um, so I never really understood that. There was one provision that kind of irked me a little bit when I was reading through it. Uh, I mean, in addition to the ones people have pointed out, like, uh, you know, it it allows a corporate lobbyists to get PPP money and stuff like that, which has been well covered. There was one provision that I noticed that kind of shocked me a little bit, which was <clears throat> they actually do have a, a bailout for landlords in the uh, in the bill. Um, they they basically create a new facility at the Fed to provide uh, credit to landlords who need you know money because their uh, renters are not paying them. Um, and as part of that, you say, oh, what are, the, what are the conditions? We must be getting something for this credit. And one of the conditions is that, the, one of the conditions is that you can't discriminate against Section 8 uh, tenants. Right now, any landlord is allowed to say, oh, you wanna pay with a Section 8 voucher. Too bad, we don't rent a Section 8 voucher, people. That's, you know, that's the rule as it stands. And so they're saying, hey, if you want to borrow from this facility, you have to let the Section 8 uh, tenants in, which would be good, you know. Section 8 tenants need housing. Uh, they shouldn't be discriminated against just because they're poor. Um, but there's a carve-out for landlords who have uh, fewer than 100 properties. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> You know. uh, when you said there's a carve out, uh, all I could think of was, "What's this number going to be? It's going to yeah. be something ridiculous." And it was—it's quite ridiculous. Yeah. So if you have, if you if you are a, you have a mere 99 rental units, you are <laughs> you are protected. You can you can get the Fed money, and still discriminate against poor people. So you know they're all looking out for for the for the looking out for the little guys. That's the Democratic Party, right? They look after the little guy, the, yeah. the small, the, the small landowner of just eighty-seven properties. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you, Matt, for doing this. Uh, once again, folks, it's the People's Policy dot org. A lot of cool stuff there. Uh, there's two big red buttons on the right side where you can uh, click to support uh, Matt's work. Matt is also the co-host of the Brunings podcast. Uh, you're like um you're I guess you're like the most wholesome DC power couple. Uh yeah. Is that how you would look? I think so. <laughs> it's a it's it's a, it's 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 they're always nice conversations too, so look into that. And speaking of support and podcasts, uh you can support ours at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Uh, thanks a lot, Matt. I appreciate you uh, hopping on with us. Thanks for having me. Yep, left is best, everybody. 